Ephesians chapter 6, take your Bibles and turn back there. We're continuing in our series called Battle Ready, uh, Standing Your Ground in the Strength of the Lord. And tonight, as I mentioned, we're going to look at the second piece of armor, the breastplate. So let me just begin reading um, in verse 10, and we'll just read up through uh, verse 14 tonight. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Father, we're grateful uh, that we have an opportunity to dive deeper into uh, these um, verses and to try to get past the, the nebulous, mystical perspective on this armor that you provide us. And so we need your Spirit's help. Uh, Lord, illuminate our minds that we would understand what this means, what Paul had in mind when he wrote this, and uh, how it applies to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a series on spiritual warfare would not be complete without addressing the topic of demon possession. Based on what we read in the Gospels and the book of Acts, uh, it is clear that demons can invade a person's life and take control over them and speak through them and cause physical ailments and multiple personalities and all sorts of other bizarre symptoms, um, depression, aggression, antisocial behavior, immodesty, superhuman strength. Of course, I'm thinking about the gathering demoniac, that dude that lived naked out in the, the tombs, right? And when anybody ever tried to come uh, out towards him, he'd, try, he'd, he'd attack him, and they had tried to put him in chains, and he kept breaking those chains. And um, that's just one example from uh, the New Testament of what it looks like, perhaps, to be demon-possessed. I'll never forget when I was probably um, maybe in uh, fifth, sixth grade. I, I have a hard time recalling exactly what grade I was in, but our church back in Massachusetts where we attended uh, one evening uh, hosted a movie, uh, and they invited us all to come, and uh, the movie was called The Enemy. It was made back in 1974. Anybody ever heard of that or seen that movie, The Enemy? Okay. It, it really, now that I look back on it, it kind of was like a Christian horror movie. <laughs> um, and and I'll, I'll just never forget this movie as long as I live um, because it was my first exposure to demon possession. And it was uh, based on a, a, apparently a true story of a youth pastor who was trying to minister to these two brothers who were possessed by demons. They had, been, they had grown up in a home where uh, it was either their mother or their grandmother uh, would have seances and Ouija boards and all those kinds of things, and, uh, and somehow th that influenced these boys. And so the story was all about um, how this couple was trying to uh, help basically cast these demons out 
uh, of these boys. And so just the way they depicted uh, what it looks like, and it was the, it was the, the voices coming out. And I was like, I'm sitting there in church just like, just freaking out, like, what is going on here? And the thing I remember the most, though, is we had to drive home about 15 minutes uh, down this windy road through the woods to get to our house. And it was my mom and dad in the front seat, and I was in the back seat, and I remember I was so freaked out that I didn't want to sit next to the either door, you know, so I actually sat in the middle so, you know, something couldn't, like, open the door and grab me and see, you know, throw me out in the woods or something. I mean, I was so wigged out by this movie, but um, it, it was um, very realistic and, and it really, um, in my mind, um, helped me understand this is very real um, and it wasn't anything beyond of what the scripture depicts, that demons can gain a foothold in someone's life, primarily through sinful activities uh, sinful associations, obviously uh, drug use, uh, pornography, worldly music, uh, worldly movies, ungodly friends. And so we have to be careful about these things. But at the same time, while there are multiple examples of Jesus and his apostles confronting and casting demons uh, out of people, there are no biblical examples of a believer being possessed by a demon. And I think most theologians would agree that a Christian cannot be possessed by an evil spirit since they're already indwelt by the Holy Spirit who would never share residence with a demon. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Holy Spirit is jealous. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for me. Uh, he wants us all to himself. James 4, 5. Do you, do, not, do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And so I personally believe it's impossible for someone that has the Spirit of God in them, i.e. a Christian, cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. However, I think believers can still be the target of demonic activity. They could be oppressed by demons. They could be influenced by demons. And there are some examples in both the Old and New Testaments of believers talking about an Old Testament saint, perhaps, um, a New Testament believer, uh, who were oppressed or influenced by Satan. Think back in the Old Testament, there's an individual who the Bible says very clearly was troubled by an evil spirit. You remember who I'm talking about? Saul, the first king of Israel. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and, and by the way, this is going to be more of a Bible study tonight because there's a lot of ground that we have to cover. So hopefully you've got your Bibles and uh, you'll be ready to flip around with me to look at some of these passages that I think are very intriguing. But 1 Samuel chapter 15 is the account of Samuel, the prophet, coming to Saul, commanding him to wipe out the Amalekites, which was an enemy nation 
they were pagans, they were idol worshipers, and God wanted to use the nation of Israel to wipe them off, off the face of the earth, to punish them for their rebellion against the one true God. And so Samuel said, wipe them out, Saul. Don't leave a living soul, a human being, animal, it's all gone. So they go to war against the Amalekites, and Saul decides that he's going to spare the king, King Agag, the Amalekite king. He's also going to save some of the animals for sacrifices, kind of a way to thank the Lord for um, uh, giving them the victory. But in 1 Samuel 15, 20, Samuel shows up, and Saul said to Samuel, um, well, he actually, Saul ran out to him and said, hey, I did everything you told me to do. And remember Samuel's reply, what is this bleeding of sheep? What is this going on? Well, where is that from? Saul said to Samuel, verse 20, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So he kind of threw the people under the bus there. You see that? Oh, it's the people. That was their idea, right? But listen to Samuel's response. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Now notice verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Some of your Bibles may say what? Witchcraft. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He is also, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, I please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Interesting phrase there in verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 18, you'll see what God thinks about divination and what he said to the people of Israel. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. When you enter into the land which the Lord your God gives you, he's talking about the promised land, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is attestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for those nations which you shall dispossess. Listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so, but notice what he says, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. So in other words, uh, God doesn't speak through witches. He doesn't speak through fortune tellers. He doesn't speak through div diviners or diviners. He speaks through prophets, and he preaches his, they, 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 he speaks his word uh, through men. So, what did Samuel mean when it says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry? 
I think the reason why he likened rebellion to witchcraft or divination is because it's going against God's word. When you rebel against God's word and you go against God's word, you are being led by another spirit and you're willfully choosing to do the will and work of the enemy in direct opposition to God. And so you might as well be led by a demon or Satan or someone else because you're rejecting the Word of God. Now, it's interesting to see the effect that this had on Saul's life. Look at chapter 16. This is uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. That man that God raised up to be king to replace Saul was, of course, David. And here we have the, the, the anointing of David. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now obviously we're dealing in the Old Testament dispensation uh, in, in, if you are a Christian who has the Spirit of God in you, the, the Holy Spirit will never leave you, okay? Uh, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God uh, seemed to have a different role. He would come upon certain people for certain occasions, for certain tasks, um, and then he would leave and go on to someone else. Uh, and so we got to be careful we don't blur, blur the Old Testament and New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting, it says the Holy Spirit left him and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Guess who that young man was? David, the, 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 the king to be, the newly anointed king. And one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skilled musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the flock, Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, and he brought David there. And um, verse 22, let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. But not always. <laughs> if you know the story, look at chapter 18, verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. But this time it didn't work, <laughs> didn't calm him down. A spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Uh, it happened again uh, in chapter um, 19, chapter 19, verse 9, now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on the Saul as he was sitting in the house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear in the wall and David's fled and escaped uh, that night. 
And then if you know the climax of the story, in 1 Samuel 28, it goes from bad to worse. Here in 1 Samuel 28, we have the account of Saul and the witch of Endor, um, the, the spirit medium that he called up or sought for counsel. This is, uh, you know, again, just going from bad to worse here. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 3, Samuel was dead. All Israel lamented. The Philistines gathered um, against uh, the nation of Israel. Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. Well, that, that sounds good. But then verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I might go to her and inquire for her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, and he, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night and said, conjure up for me, please, and bring for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? You're putting my life on the line here by asking me to do what the king said I couldn't do. So Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid, but what, you, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed for the Philistines are waging war against me. And God has departed from me and no longer answers me either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've called you that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? Verse 17, the Lord has done according as he spoke through me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David, as you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. So the Lord has done this thing to you to this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. In other words, you're going to die. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So, bad example from the Old Testament of a guy who dabbled in the spirit world, if you will. Um, and when, how did this all start? Very simple, disobeying God's word not doing what God told him to do was, was the beginning of this slippery slope away from the Lord and being influenced by an evil spirit. Now, some could argue or might argue, well, I'm not sure Saul's going to be in heaven anyway. Um, we could debate about that later. Um, was he a true believer? Was he a man of God uh, given over to sin? Um, only God knows, but I think it is a good example nonetheless. Um, in the New Testament, I think Peter is another example of a believer who opened himself up to the influence of the enemy because of a failure, here it is, to fully embrace, obey, and submit to the truth of God's word. You remember the account in Matthew 16 where Jesus asked the disciples um, who the people thought he was, 
they say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered right away. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got something right. For the guy that oftentimes spoke, said the wrong thing at the wrong time, well, this was the right thing at the right time. And Jesus acknowledged, hey, you didn't figure that out yourself. Um, the Spirit of God in you, uh, my Father who's in you, uh, is in heaven, revealed that to you. Um, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build um, my church on that truth, on that revelation that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anybody about, the, about that. And then verse 21, this is uh, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So what was he doing? He was opposing the word of Christ. Christ was saying, this is what's going to happen. And he said, no, it's not, over my dead body. And so he was butting heads with God in the flesh, right? And notice how Christ responded, verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Peter, you are stumbling, is that what he said? No, get behind me, who? Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Again, I think there's a lot of similarities between Saul in the Old Testament and Peter in the New Testament, that they both failed at the moment to embrace and obey and submit to the truth of God's word. And that's why it's so important for us to know and to live the truth. And we learned last week that that is where it all starts when it comes to the armor of God, that we need to have, that we need to gird our loins with the belt of truth. It's, it's, it's where it all starts. It all is connected, right, to the belt, and it's, it's knowing the truth, and it's living the truth. Tonight, we're going to look at the next phrase here, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, we said this last week, that Paul was under house arrest in Rome when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. He was chained to a Roman soldier. Uh, whether or not he was fully uh, decked out in his armor, probably not, under house arrest. But he had seen plenty of Roman soldiers marching around. He knew exactly what they looked like. And it brought to mind an analogy that he was going to use uh, the, the armor of a Roman soldier to describe the, the, the armor of God. And so uh, Roman soldiers wore this sleeveless piece of armor that covered the upper part of their torso, protecting them from the neck all the way down uh, to the middle of their legs. Um, and it was both front and back, so it was kind of like a vest. And, and it was either made of leather, uh, on which they would sew pieces of hooves and horns, uh, or, or it, maybe it was a coat of chain mail, or sometimes it was a large piece of metal uh, hammered out uh, to conform to the soldier's chest. But the purpose of that, uh, of that breastplate was to protect the heart and the lungs and the rest of the vital organs uh, of that soldier when he was in battle. And so Paul described the believer's armor as the breastplate of righteousness, or literally the breastplate which is righteousness. 
And the, the place we can begin in understanding, well, what did he mean by that? What was Paul talking about? What was he referring to? Back in Isaiah 59, verse 16, it actually says, the, the prophet Isaiah says the same thing here. Essentially, this is God um, talking about how he's going to come deliver the nation of Israel uh, and, and put down their enemies um, and, and deliver them and save them. And in Isaiah 59, verse 16, it says this, And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And I think this is a reference to the Messiah, to Christ himself. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. So, we see the Lord himself wearing this breastplate of righteousness. So, again, what is Paul talking about here? Well, to be righteous, just basic term here, basic definition, it means to be good, it means to be upright, it means to be virtuous, it means to be blameless. So, a truly, fully righteous person does right all the time. They always do right. Well, we know what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're all, what? Unrighteous, right? Romans chapter 3, Paul makes that very clear. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we become useless. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. Isaiah 64, 6 All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag or a filthy garment. And we know from the book of Romans that because we are unrighteous, we deserve to be punished and experience the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the bad news. The good news is that God in His grace provides us the righteousness that we lack when we place our faith in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 1.17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. Again, chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. We've been through this uh, a few years ago when we studied the book of Romans, but uh, Romans 3.21, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, being justified or declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then Titus chapter 3, verse 5, very simply um, says it this way. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing, regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. So 
What are we saying here? When a person repents of their sin and they trust Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, the righteousness of Christ is transferred to their account. And Matthew quoted a verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin uh, was made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God put our sin on Jesus when he was on the cross, and he put Jesus' righteousness on us. God treated Jesus like he lived our lives and experienced the punishment for our sin, and he treats us, God treats us like we live Jesus' life, his perfect life. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw us, and when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. So being clothed with Christ's righteousness enables us to stand in the presence of a holy God and be acceptable to him. And and, and in other words, we're no longer under condemnation. We're no longer condemned. We're accepted. Um, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. This is the passage that uh, uh, Michael C. Usen preached this past Sunday talking about all, that, all the righteousness, the human righteousness, the self-righteousness that Paul was trusting in to get him to heaven, uh, that he counted all that as loss. Uh, verse 7, uh, for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and here it is, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, in other words, keeping the law and doing all the right things, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So this is what theologians call the imputed righteousness or positional righteousness um, of of the believer. It's it's talking about our position or our standing in Christ. And so Paul may have had this in mind when he talked about the breastplate of righteousness, but he also could have had in mind what's referred to as practical righteousness, So again, you've got positional righteousness and you've got practical righteousness. Practical righteousness is right character. It's proper conduct. It's it's holy living. And so positional righteousness manifests itself in practical righteousness. In other words, when we receive the righteousness from God, when we're saved, then that righteousness begins to reproduce itself in our lives. It it, it develops and, and manifests itself in righteous living. And it's really a basic concept. Because we were made righteous, we should therefore live righteous. We should be righteous in the way that we live, live our lives. And we see Paul saying this on a number of occasions in a number of different ways. Romans 6.13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. True believers practice 
righteousness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. In other words, how do you know if you're saved? Uh, or not, if you're on your way to heaven or you're on your way to hell, it's very simple. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So a true believer practices righteousness. Does it, does it, are they perfect? Is that what practice means? No, it's talking about the pattern of your life, the general pattern of your life, that, that you're, you're sinning less and less is the idea. You're, you're doing the right thing more and more. That should be the trajectory of a true believer's life. So, if you remember last week, we said that when it came to this belt of truth, um, it could have either, Paul could have been thinking about either objective truth, the Word of God, or subjective truth, living out the Word of God. So we said, hey, do you really have to decide? Uh, it's not a, either or, it's really a both and, that you need to know the truth and you need to live the truth. And I think in a similar way, there is no reason to have to decide here whether this is, um, you know, positional righteousness or practical righteousness. Um, I think it's just best to combine them since one invariably leads to another. They're like two sides of the same coin. Our positional righteousness in Christ should be and must be worked out practically in our everyday lives. One commentator put it this way, the, the completeness of pardon for past offense and the integrity of character that belong to the justified life are woven together into an impenetrable male. Talking about armor, that those two come together and they they're, 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 they're weave together. Positional righteousness, practical righteousness weave together to create this breastplate of righteousness that is impenetrable to the weapons uh, and the attacks uh, of the enemy. Now, let's try to go a little deeper on a more practical level here. Turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, that's the part of your, the Old Testament that all the pages are stuck together because you rarely go there, right? Zechariah chapter 3, just kind of go to Matthew and then go back just a couple books there. In fact, two books. You got Malachi and then you got Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And again, this is just an account of Joshua, the high priest. And, and really, it's a, I think this is an occasion of spiritual warfare going on in the Old Testament between the high priest of Israel and Satan. Zechariah 3, 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to, what, accuse him. We know that, that Satan is the accuser, right? That's one of his names in scripture. And so he was standing there to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let me put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by him. So here's Satan accusing the high priest of Israel, saying he's got no business being the high priest of Israel. He was a sinner. And, and here comes the Lord rebuking Satan um, and saying, hey, this is, like, this is somebody that I plucked from the fire. This is one of mine. He's claiming him as his own. But then notice he puts on this, he gives him a new set of clothes, which enabled him to stand firm in the face of Satan's accusations. And again, I think this is a clear example of imputed righteousness that he, he clothed him. In other words, he, he removed the filthy garments that Satan was going, look at this guy representing his sin. Look at this guy. He's a sinner. He said, okay, we'll, we'll change that. Okay, now he's a saint. He's righteous. We're going to give him a new, new set of clothes. Not a spot on him. But notice the next two verses which I think are a reference to practical righteousness. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those, or excuse me, among these who are standing here. So here was the Lord affirming his righteousness, if you will, because of the righteousness that he had provided him, this new set of clothes that he provided him. But now he still had an obligation to obey. And it was because Joshua had been made righteous that he was to live righteously. And really our, our righteous standing and our righteous living, again, weave together here in this impenetrable mail or breastplate guards our hearts against the assaults of Satan. And again, there's a very important truth or principle that we learn from this incident in Zechariah chapter 3, and that is one of Satan's primary tactics, his number one tactic is what? We talked about it a couple Sundays ago. Deception, right? Now, that's his main, his primary tactic, but another one of his evil, evil tactics is condemnation. Condemnation. Satan is always trying to accuse God's children. And, and we see this in the very first book that was ever written that we have recorded here in the scriptures, which is the book of Job. I don't know if you know that. It's the oldest book of the Bible. Uh, Job chapter 1, verse 6 now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around in it. In it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, and blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And notice Satan's response, verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, he accused Job of simply serving the Lord and fearing the Lord and honoring the Lord because um, God had blessed him. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and 
uh, all these ways that you've blessed him. And then notice verse 11, he says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. So he's basically um, accusing Job of, of having false motives uh, for why uh, he served the Lord and worshiped the Lord. He said it again in chapter 2, verse 5. Um, well, we know that this was an example of what Jesus said to Peter in Luke twenty-two, thirty-one, that Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. In other words, to test you, to see what you're really made of, how devoted you really are to me. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 is where we get the, 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 um, the reference about him being the accuser of the saints. This is uh, Revelation 12, 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Talking about the mighty dragon representing Satan. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So in some way, shape, or form, Satan is accusing all of us on a daily basis before the throne of God. And Satan wants to uh, overwhelm us with despair. He wants to discourage us by getting us to live under guilt and condemnation and, and keep us wallowing in the shame of our sin. And, and it's interesting, I think, you know, and this is how you know if this is the spirit or, it's, or is it Satan. If you feel convicted about a sin that you are committing or you just committed, um, or you're thinking about commit, committing, who's that? If you're convicted by that. That's the Spirit's work in your heart. But if you are condemned for a sin you committed, uh, a sin you, you, you know, you're thinking about committed, whatever, that's the work of Satan. Because the Spirit convicts, Satan condemns, the Spirit reassures us, and, the, and Satan just rattles our confidence. He wants us to think that we're no good, that we have no right to come before God, that, you know, the, the whole, oh, you call yourself a Christian. How can you claim to be God's child after doing what you just did? Those are the kind of thoughts, I think, that Satan and his evil forces plant in our heads. And that's why we love Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no, what, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, in that same context, verse 14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit is there to assure us, to, to, to give us confidence, to give us hope, whereas Satan is constantly accusing us. And again, Romans 8, verse um, 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Satan. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Again, warlike language there. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? So this is what we need to remember when Satan attacks us and accuses us and tries to overwhelm us with guilt and make us feel like a failure and that we're unworthy of God's acceptance and love. Let me read a couple commentators um, and what they had to say because I I like how they um, expanded this whole idea here. This is uh, Stuart Oliott. Quoting here, we are to remember that our acceptance with God does not depend on how well we're doing in our Christian lives. It is in no way linked to our performance. We are welcomed by the Father because our sins were all punished when Christ died for us and his righteousness imputed to us makes us glorious in his sight. When we put on such a way of thinking, all the devil's attempts to discourage us come to nothing. Ray Stedman said it this way, quote, you are to remember that you have put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, you do not stand on your own merit. You never did. You never had anything worthwhile in yourself to offer to God. You gave all that up when you came to Christ. You quit trying to be good enough to please God. You came on his merits. You came on the ground of his imputed righteousness, that which he gives to you. You began your Christian life like that, and there is no change now. You are still standing before God on that basis. And then the big dog, Martin Lloyd-Jones, from the one of two volumes at the end of his six-volume commentary on Ephesians. Um, This one is simply called the, The Christian Soldier. But listen to what he says here. He says, what we have to realize at all points and always is that our standing is never based on our actions or goodness. It is because we tend to think that is so based that when we fall into sin, we say, oh, it's all over. And so we listen to the devil when he brings his accusations against us. Obviously, we've been relying upon our goodness and our righteousness. The wearing of the breastplate of righteousness is our one security. Keep it on. And when the devil comes and says, you have no standing, you're condemned, you're finished, you must say, no, my position did not depend on what I was doing or not doing. It is always dependent upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to the devil and tell him, my relationship to God is not a variable one, The case is not that I am a child of God one day and not a child of God the next day, then a child of God, and then again not a child of God. That is not the basis of my standing. That is not the position. When God had mercy upon me, he made me his child, and I remain his child, a very sinful and a very unworthy one, perhaps, but still his child. And now when I fall into sin, I have not sinned against the law. I have sinned against love. Like the prodigal, I will go back to my father and I will tell him, Father, I'm not worthy to be called thy son, but he will embrace me and he will say, do not talk nonsense, you're my child. And he will shower his love upon me. That is the meaning of putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Never allow the devil to get you into a state of condemnation. Never allow a particular sin to raise again the whole question of your standing before God. Isn't that good? And I don't know about you, but that's a constant battle that's going on in my heart and mind on a daily basis. 
wrestling with my standing in Christ. And again, whenever we fall into sin and Satan accuses us, we need to remind ourselves of our positional righteousness. But how much better to avoid accusation altogether? You say, how's that possible? Well, when we put our imputed righteousness to practical use. In other words, moment by moment, day by day, choosing to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing. If you, if you know something is the right thing to do and you don't do it, or if you know something isn't the right thing to do and you do it anyway, you give the devil an opportunity to accuse you. You're opening up the door and saying, come on, bring it. Accuse me. And that's why we need to be passionate about doing it and saying and thinking the right things and, and, and being equally passionate about not doing and saying and thinking the wrong things. Because when we're living a holy and righteous life, Satan can't accuse us of anything. So when our life is right, it's like, it's like a breastplate that protects our hearts from Satan's accusations, just like the breastplate of the Roman soldier protected their vital organs against attack. So let me wrap this all up. So, so what is the breastplate of righteousness? It is our righteous standing in Christ coupled with our righteous living for Christ. Let me say that again. It's our righteous standing in Christ and because of Christ coupled um, weave together with our righteous living for Christ and by Christ. I had the by Christ because we can't live righteously on our own, in our own strength, right? Um, we are righteous because of Christ and we can live righteous only because of Christ. So how do we Apply this practically. How do you put on the breastplate of righteousness? Let me give you just, just, just a little grocery list here. I think it's six or seven things here. Um, that just practically, what does it mean to put on the breastplate of righteousness? How do we do that practically? Number one, forsake your own self-righteousness. Forsake your own self-righteousness. Stop thinking that you're good enough in and of yourself to make it to heaven. Stop trusting in all, the, in all the right things that you've done or you're trying to do to make yourself acceptable to God. I mean, if you want to go that route, listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 5.20, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you've got to be more righteous, right, than the scribes and the Pharisees who were outwardly more righteous than anyone. I um, love the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18. Let me just remind you of this, Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. So just, just basically telling God how good he was and how uh, blessed he was to have him. You know, you're, you're, you're blessed, God, to have a guy like me. 
But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, wouldn't even look to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you wanted to put a title on that parable, it would be the good man who went to hell and the bad man who went to heaven. But don't be fooled. Satan's goal is to get as many people to go to hell with him as possible. And one of the main tactics is getting people to believe that they're going to heaven because of their good deeds. And they're going to get there and say, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do this? And didn't we do this? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And Satan's like, gotcha. So don't be duped by that dumb lie that you can be good enough to earn God's favor and work your way to heaven. So forsake your own self-righteousness. Number two, seek and trust in Christ's righteousness alone. Seek and trust in Christ's righteousness alone. Matthew 6, Jesus said, what? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, if I think I can get to heaven on my own, then there was no reason for Jesus to die on the cross. And then again in Philippians, he talks about wanting to know Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. So seek and trust in Christ's righteousness alone. Number three, revel and rest in the fact that you stand blameless before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I mean, just, just practically, that's just something on a daily basis that you, you should just revel in that. Rejoice in that. And rest in that, that you stand blameless before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you need to be reminded of that, and sometimes you need to remind Satan of that. And you might get to remind your husband or wife of that, uh, or maybe your children of that, or your brother or sister of that, your brother or sister in Christ. They, hey, we're our standing in Christ. Again, Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. So, forsake your own self-righteousness. Seek and trust in Christ's righteousness. Rebel, rejoice, rest in the fact that you stand blameless before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Number four, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, do you have a hunger, do you have a thirst for doing the right thing? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Hunger and thirst after 
righteousness. Number five, do what's right. Do what's right. Live a righteous and holy life so your conscience is void of any offense toward God and man. Just do the right thing. Live a righteous and holy life so your conscience is void of any offense toward God and man. I love Acts 24, 16. Paul said, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before, before both God and before men. In other words, I want to be right in the eyes of God. I want to do what's right in the eyes of God. I also, I also want to do what's right in the eyes of men. So do what's right. Live a righteous, holy life. Don't click on that porn site. Don't eat that food or buy that outfit that you don't need. Don't harbor bitterness uh, and resentment in your heart towards others. Pursue reconciliation. Those are the, there's, there's right and wrong things, right? That's just put it, you, you fill in the blank there. I just gave you a few examples of what it means to do what's right and maintain a, a clear conscience before God and men. And then how about this one? Regularly confess your sin. Regularly confess your sin. We talked about David last week and how he hid his sin of adultery and murder for a year. And Psalm 51 was his prayer of confession and repentance. I love what he says in Psalm 32. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the, what? The guilt of my sin. So if you want to get out from living under guilt, you've got to confess your sin. And God not only forgives your sin, but he forgives the guilt that goes along with sin. Um, of course, we've got 1 John 1, 9, a very familiar passage here. Um, 1 John 1, uh, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with the one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're talking about the breastplate of righteousness here, right? My little children, he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then one last passage, and, and you got to turn here with me, okay? This last one, I'll, the only last one I'll make you look at, all right? Back, it's, it's back in the sticky pages again. Micah chapter 7, you'll love this one. You've got you to see this, you've got to know this, you've got to have this dog-eared in your Bible or underlined, highlighted. This'll, this is a, this a go-to, this will become a go-to passage for you, I guarantee you. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verse 7. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now notice this, verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. 
I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? And the the scene in my mind is, is, is when we blow it, when we sin, it's like Satan and his and his, and, his, and his armies, they just, they throw a party, and they're just like rejoicing. They're doing the, they're doing the, the victory dance, right? And uh, look at, we got them. We got another one. We got them again. How many times did we get them this week? And they, they do a little victory dance. They rejoice over us. But though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is light for me. Yeah, you're right. I'm bearing the indignation of the Lord. I messed up. I sinned. But guess what? He pleads my case, and he executes justice for me in the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom I'm trusting in to cover that sin, and he'll bring me out to the light, and I will see his righteousness. I was introduced to that passage. I'll never forget it. I was listening to a message by John Piper, and I think it was a message right down here in um, the Toyota Center, one of the Passion Conferences. And he was preaching to a, a coliseum full of young people, and it was all about missions. And he was preaching a message on missions and how they needed to go and give their lives for the cause of Christ. And wherever that took them around the world, they would really be willing to give it all up for Jesus. And then he got real with the kids. He said, I, but, but you know what? I think some of you won't do that because you think you're unworthy And even today, you're feeling guilt for something you did last night in that hotel room that you spent the night in. And again, it was a pin drop in the room. And he said, I know. A group of young people this size, I guarantee there was sin happening last night somewhere, somehow, someplace with some of you. And you feel completely worthless, useless to the Lord. And then he pulled out this verse. And he started reading through this verse, and I was just like, my jaw hit the ground. I was like, this is beautiful. This is powerful. And so I want to encourage you to confess your sin regularly, quickly, and and as often as you need to, and claim this promise, this beautiful, powerful passage in Micah chapter 7. The last thing I'll say is, prayer, right? We know that prayer is a part of putting on each piece of armor. So pray that God would just help you live a righteous life. You could pray something like this, God, thank you that my sin has been covered by the blood and the righteousness of Christ. Help me to live out my righteousness in Christ today in the way I think, the way I act, and the way I talk, so I will be protected from Satan's accusations. That sounds like a practical prayer, right? To put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together uh, in your word. Uh, I pray that, uh, especially for those that perhaps uh, have been getting beat up on uh, lately by Satan and his accusations, and they just came in here riddled with guilt and shame because of some sin that they committed in the past or maybe some sin they're in right now. Um, Lord, I pray that your love would woo them out of that sin, it would, would, your, your kindness would lead them to repentance tonight. 
And Lord, that they would claim the, 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 the promises of your word, that, that those who are in Christ are no longer under condemnation. We don't have to live under condemnation. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ. And, and Lord, thank you that you are our advocate um, through Christ. We have an advocate with you, the Father, um, who defends us and who claims us as his own no matter what we do and how many times we mess up. Lord, may that not um, in any way encourage us to sin. We know that what Paul said, may it never be um, that we would sin so that grace may abound. Lord, may it just want, make us want to love you more and, and to be more faithful to you and to live a more holy and righteous life for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.